We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings. As you all know, you can find me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs and the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. However, the big news today, the countdown. It is now just four weeks until the best SAS conference begins. Yes, Sasta Annual 2018 is just four weeks away. And if you've not got your tickets to see amazing speakers like our guest today, who will be speaking at the event, then you can go and get them. And if you use the promo code drinks with Harry, those three words, drinks with Harry, you will get 10% off off the ticket price, and even better, mojitos with me. I can't wait to meet you in person. However, to our guest today, and I'm thrilled to welcome Mike McDermott to the show. Mike is co-founder and CEO of FreshBooks, the number one cloud-based accounting software designed exclusively for service-based small business owners. Starting from his parents' basement, Mike has scaled FreshBooks to more than 10 million users worldwide and raising over 75 million in VC funding from the likes of Accomplice and Georgian Partners. Mike's also the co-author of Breaking the Time Barrier, downloaded more than 250,000 times since its release. I'd also owe a big thanks to the main man, Jason Lemkin, for the intro to Mike today, without which this episode would not have been possible. However, before we move into the show's date, today's podcast wouldn't be possible without High Five, the firm making meetings better for thousands of organizations with insanely simple video conferencing designed for meeting rooms. But why would the episode not have been possible without them? Well, not only are High Five the sponsor of the show, but today's interview was recorded using High Five, switching from our traditional Skype usage. Why the switch? Well, honestly, for me, it was about two things, quality and ease of use. It's the easiest to use solution with all-in-one hardware and intuitive cloud software, Plus, it's this really high-quality experience with industry-leading audio powered by Dolby Voice, which you'll get to hear in today's episode. And it's so easy to use that there's no PIN codes or app downloads. Just click a link in your browser and you're in the meeting. And with customers in over 100 countries, High Five is already trusted by the likes of Warby Parker, Evernote, Expensify, and Betterment, just to name a few. And to learn more and start your 30-day free trial of insanely simple video conferencing, visit highfive.com forward slash sasta. That's highfive.com forward slash sasta. So if High Five is mastering all things team communication and you're a data-driven CEO, executive, or manager, the other big thought for you should be how do I manage and measure my team with clear objectives? Well, you should try A-Team to set clear, measurable objectives for your company, create a one-page strategy that links to your execution and measurable progress, and align your entire company to what matters most. A-Team uses OKRs to identify progress bottlenecks early, allowing you to scale your SaaS faster and better. A-Team is the unified and integrated three-in-one platform for strategy, objectives, and performance management, simply head over to ATEAM.com, that's A-T-I-I-M.com, and get a free SaaS CEO's Guide to OKRs for 2018. That's A-T-I-I-M.com. That really is a must. But without further ado, I'm now thrilled to welcome Mike McDermott, founder and CEO at FreshBooks. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Mike, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Mike. Great to be here, Harry. Thank you. I'd love to kick off this date with a little about you and how you came to found the leading provider of online bookkeeping software for self-employed professionals in FreshBooks. What was that founding story? My founding story is one of scratching your own itch. So I was running a small design firm. Running from my home, I had some remote folks working on projects and serving clients with me. I'd been 
into business school, I'd studied accounting, but I was using Word and Excel to manage my books because I wasn't fond of the options that were available for small businesses, especially ones as, as small as my own. And so anyways, using Word and Excel, and one day I accidentally saved over an invoice I was making for a client. And I said, you know, there's just got to be a better way to do this. And so I used some of my own hacker programming skills, and I made a simple version that my clients could see an invoice online. So it was presented to them online, didn't have the ability to pay it or anything like that, but they really liked it. So it was a side project to begin with. And then eventually started realizing like, you know, other people might like this instead about turning it into something other people would like to sign up for. That was a a long time ago now. And that's the beginnings of the company. And what a journey it has been. But I want to start today with with some of the conversations that we've had before in which you said to me before, and if you'll pardon my French here, fuck the pivot, it's overrated. I'm intrigued (laughs) to hear kind of your thesis behind this and how do you think about that maybe with Bill Spring and the kind of subsequent moves since? So a bunch of threads we can pull on in here. I guess my bias is that Pivot has given quote-unquote entrepreneurs an excuse to just quit if something's hard. And it's been my experience in the early days of the company that sometimes sticking with something and pushing through is more valuable. And I find that actually now, uh, learning a larger organization as well, is sometimes you just need to stick with something and it might take longer than you had planned. It might be harder, but uh, the results come on the other side. And so that's the heart of what we're getting at. And I, I guess I come by this, dare I say, wisdom, honestly, because we started the company and two years into it, we had 10 customers paying us $9.99 a month each. Uh, So we're making $100 a month. My co-founders are, I'm a business school guy, doctorate in computer science and electrical engineer. And we just loved what we were doing. And we just kept working at it and working at it, trying to learn how to build a product company. None of us had done that before and uh, and figured it out. And now we're 300 people, millions of people use our service every month. Uh, We help people collect tens of billions of dollars every year. It's pretty remarkable how far we've come. So that, that's the early stage part of it. And I think we could have easily pivoted into something else along the way. And I think sometimes perseverance and tackling a hard thing is actually where the value gets created long term. And we've certainly uh, done a good job of doing that. How do you think that kind of uh, willingness to persevere where maybe things don't look so rosy changes when you have maybe tier one investors on board and kind of thinking back to kind of your early days and the funding behind you? Yeah, my philosophy there is... So first of all, I'll also say, I think it goes hand in hand with like, sometimes raising money is the worst thing you can do for you and your company. And so we almost raised money in our early days and actually didn't really proceed with it for a variety of reasons. But looking back, like it would have, we tried to basically raise an angel check for 300, 300 grand for 30% of the company. And this is back in like, you know, sort of 2004, 2005, that wouldn't happen today. But the point is it's sorting out this market and building the product. We just would not be here today if we took that check which is interesting. I don't think people think about that. I think that can happen to a lot of companies is they raise because they think they need to, or they raise because they want to keep their project alive, as opposed to thinking about, well, listen, like maybe we should work a little longer, a little harder, scrapping it out in the background and then raise money when we're better set up for it. And we have a better chance of success delivering and returning those dollars. And so I think that's the the early stage piece. And then, yeah, we've raised $75 million or something now, US. So uh, that's happened in the past three years in two rounds. And I would say sticking with stuff, you know, sometimes you need to stick with an initiative for another couple quarters longer than you think. And I think doing that comes down to like, well, who do you choose to accept money from? Do they understand operating? And that's sometimes what it takes. And so we've surrounded ourselves with some top tier investors and they get that sometimes plans don't go accordingly. Sometimes things go faster, but sometimes things take longer. And and they've been very supportive as we've actually uh, gone and you you mentioned Bill Spring off the top and that's a whole other file. But as we've gone and actually replatformed our our company. I I do want to discuss that replatform platforming 
in a little bit, I do just want to touch on the element of, you said about kind of your raising of the 75 million. I'd love to hear, having stealthily built the company and grown that customer base and grown that revenue, how did you determine when was the right time to really pull the fuel on the fire and, and raise funding externally? Yeah, so my bias with investors and some of my initial concerns around bringing them on, like been to business school, all this other stuff, but I kind of knew that I didn't really fully understand the quote unquote, the game, right? And the investors had a lot more, it just felt like I was missing some things. And I think when I look back on it, like how would I characterize that? I would say you want to set things up for success. Like I'm, I'm very interested in success. And what I realized that in hindsight, we hadn't really done yet to de-risk, frankly, the, the relationship and getting the returns for folks is, you know, you, you want to take down the product risk. You want to take down the market risk. You want to take the team and execution risk down. You want to take those to a minimum. And so we had built like a market leading product for a segment. No one had served self-employed professionals, you know, before us and the very end, no one had built a, an accounting software that's exclusively dedicated to service-based businesses and people who need to invoice. So we had done that. We were having great traction. We were winning in the market. We had the top product. People were continued to come to us sort of in droves because of the difference and the ease of use that we were able to deliver in building our offering. But the final thing for me, I guess it was two pieces. Uh, one was hiring our my first executive. Like I just, we were kind of around a hundred people and I was, I was just really struggling to scale the business. And I had tried to hire executives before and I had done that. And some of them with like great experience and background, but there was always something kind of missing with them. And then I actually got one that is kind of the game changer and really helped me implement things. And that for me was like, oh my God, I'm addicted to this. I love hiring these people and I'm going to go get more of them. And that took away like my execution scaling risk concerns. Like, oh, I see how I can do this now. Cause I think I was to some extent sort of blocked because I hadn't been able, like we were growing and everything like really well, but I just knew that, you know, I guess I didn't have the team around me that I wanted. And, and so once that piece fell into place, in fairness, I was the anti-VC guy for a long, long time. We can go back and there's another whole story there. And I have, you know, some biases around some of the ways investments get done sometimes. But I guess the, the last piece of it, so I got the team in place. So we'd taken a care of market, execution, technology. Then it was just like, hey, you know, when I look back in 30 years, do I want to feel like I left something on the table, you know, or on the field? I want, no. And I was like, no, I want to take those risks. And so, yeah, we've built something great. And technically you could lose it, but I think we de-risk things enough that it was like, you know, everybody's going to do well if we do this. So that was a little more drawn out, but you know, it's not a perspective that I feel like you hear as much about in the tech industry. In one word, where would you say investors provide the most value to you as the founder? Confidence and decision-making. For us, what we wrestled with prior to having professionals was, I mean, it can be something as mundane as like, what is appropriate executive level compensation, right? If you don't have access to that data, you can spend a lot of time hemming and hawing and what have you. If you have a professional board who sees lots of businesses, then, you know, it's simple. It's quick. It's a phone call. Like, this is market. And it's like, okay, great. And you're moving on. And so that's a small decision. There's other ones. But I just the pace of and confidence of decision-making, when you have access to the information and the pattern recognition across a bunch of uh, other companies, that that's what I've liked the best. No, absolutely. I do want to discuss that element of hiring. You said there about hiring the game-changing exec. You said there about kind of compensation. All tying very nicely together into a series of questions for me. I'm intrigued. How do you balance between culture fit versus raw IQ? It's something that I'm really struggling with at the moment in terms of the balance between the two. I'd say it this way. You can compromise a little on one, but you can't compromise on the other. And they'd be in sort of reverse order. So I don't believe you can compromise on culture fit, especially in your senior team. If you hire somebody who's not behaving like the culture of the company you espouse and they're not furthering it and internalizing it and you know it's just not a values fit, you'll undermine your integrity and credibility, your ability to lead. Like, you know, people will be demotivated. It'll be very, very 
very bad. And then on the intelligence uh, side is like, I think strengths come in different forms. And, you know, IQ is, is one of those forms, but, you know, sometimes great executors aren't necessarily the top IQ folks, <laughs> right? But they're really great at motivating and, and helping other people get going and leading because, you know, they, instead of trying to be the smartest person in the room, they figure out how to get the most out of the people around them. And so that would be how I would think about it. In terms of the, the game-changing element of hiring that kind of really transformative individual, how do you think about compensation, compensation bans and being rigid around them? And is that flexible for those game changes, do you think? You know, I think market is market and those game changes are coming to influence their equity component of the business. Here, I guess it depends at what scale you're talking about. I think early days, you might stretch your compensation considerably relative to the rest of your team because there's such a golf. I guess now I'm sitting in a place where I have a senior executive team and it's not quite like that. So I guess it it changes over time. But yeah, you're going to pay that first person probably considerably more than anybody else that you have paid uh, to date. Speaking of that senior exec team you just mentioned, we actually had Chris Cowan from iParadigms on the show the other day, and he said that management upscaling is the most important role as a CEO. Would you agree with that? Trying to figure out what the heck the role of the CEO is, is is kind of been one of the threads I've been working on over the years. And, you know, Fred Wilson was like, it's the vision for the company, it's the team, and it's enough cash in the bank. Those are the three things you got to do. So I think you have to do all three of those, but, you know, the highest impact one of them all is is building that team. I do do want to touch on the element of the replatforming that we mentioned earlier. We had Steve Lachlan at Excel on the show, and he posed the issue for most founders being the fact of building kind of short-term product features and balancing that with paying off technical debt. I'm intrigued how you think about this, given the replatforming that you've been through and kind of having that legacy technical debt and then the reinvigoration of it, so to speak. Yeah, so maybe if I could just take a bit of a longer answer to this one, set some context for our case, and then I can share some of what we've learned. You know, in our case, we actually started the company. I hacked that first version together, believe it or not, in 2003. And, you know, we launched in May 2004. And if you think about that time frame, like the tools that people take for granted today, things like Ruby on Rails, which, you know, are frankly, you know, the things we're using now, like, you know, Ember.js and stuff like that, the tools that people take for granted for building the kinds of products that we offer to market today, they did not exist when we started. And so we were building our own frameworks and that kinds of things. That's where we got started. And so so that's context. And then the, the world's changed. Like we kind of got 10 years out of a platform. And 10 years is like an interesting timeline for a technology platform, right? Especially one developed by the founders. And so then I think you have a question of, do you really need to replatform or not? Or can you sort of refactor your way with sections of the product to get there? And, and in our case, what we decided is, hey, ease of use is basically where the game is won or lost uh, in our product because we're building something that's so easy to use, people don't need to learn accounting. And we want to have somebody who's like, hey, I'm thinking about going out on my own, just have a, such a simple time getting up and going and creating invoices, sending them, tracking expenses, getting basic reporting, like just make that so easy. So ease of use is so key. And consumer expectations have changed so much in the last while with you know, the addition of mobile apps and the ability to push a button and like have a car arrive. Like it, it's just so different that you know we had our, what I like to call our founder code. And we just had front end code that was like a massive code base with business logic in it and what have you. And so we just said, hey, if we're going to win on UX, you know, we can't refactor our way to greatness is the way I, I like to say it. So, uh, and we want to win. Like, and so this isn't a decision about next year or the year after. It's about, you know, are we winning three to five years from now? That was the lens I used to, like, we had the market leading product at the time, super high NPS scores, and yet we rolled the dice to replatform the, the company. Can I ask a couple of questions, yeah. immediate questions that I'm too excited to ask? How does replatforming change the kind of ability to drive revenues in those subsequent months? I think it sort of depends on 
you and your business. Like, let me tell you why it's a terrible idea to replatform. <laughs> because I, I like to give, the, I give this talk I give, and it's like I spend a bunch of time on the number one rule in software is you, you don't replatform your software. And there's there's really good reasons for this. First of all, starting a project that's that risky, chances are it never completes. If you do complete it, it's going to take way longer than you thought, which means it's going to cost way more than you think. By the way, your competition is not standing still. They're continuing to move. And my personal favorite is, you know, what I like to call the sophomore jinx. And like, did you ever love a band and their first album? And then you go get their second album as soon as it comes out and it's just crap. You know, that happens in software. There's no guarantee that your customers will like the new version as much as the old one, or that it will be as business performant. And I can tell you, like, we've learned a bunch about like where people people get that wrong. And you hear about these nightmare, like people just log in one day and they're forced to switch to a new version. That's not the approach we took. Uh, I got a longer file on that. But there's basically just so many things that can go wrong. And so in our case, like we were still adding like tons and tons of customers with our core platform. People were very happy, but the rate of change had kind of been slowed by this technical debt anyways, from, from our opinion. And so we want to get on a, a faster track. And so to kind of hit the pause button for sort of 18 months, and because and, that's, you know, when you have something that's 10 years old, it's going to take you you know, maybe that or longer to get the new thing to market and really start changing the pace of innovation on a new platform. That was the, the bet we decided to make and sort of proving out to be a good one for us with a long range add on. What a payoff it's been. I do want to touch on the element you said there about when it doesn't work and where people make mistakes with the replatforming. I'm yeah. intrigued. Where are the most common mistakes you see? Is it kind of completely revolutionized UI that looks like a different company and brand? What are the biggest problems? Well, before I kind of answer that question, I want to tell you what we did to deal with those risks because we took a bit of a different approach is, you know, it's very risky, like for all the reasons I put out there. There's some other problems too, if you're replatforming, depending on how you're doing it. One I was very concerned with was I wanted the team to be able to take big risks in building and to like really, like when I say big risks, I mean, if you live within a brand and your brand means something and our, you know, and, and trust is at the heart of brands, like you can't do crazy things that, for example, might lead to like data loss or something like that. You can't take risks or you can't build a UX that's like half complete and throw it out there because it's just not what people expect from you, sort of my belief. And so we had this problem. We wanted to take big risks. We want to do something really you know, different from our point of view, but you know, not completely undermine the trust. And so what we actually ended up doing to de-risk this, and, and I guess another problem when you build a new platform is you don't know if the business performance is going to be as good. And I wanted to ensure that it was. And so you know, we wrung our hands a little bit, talked about launching in, in some, some other markets, and, and ultimately decided to do the following, which was our solution was to actually split test companies. What do I mean when I say that? Well, what we elected to do was to you know, create a new company, like incorporated it with a new name. It's called Bill Spring on a new URL with a new logo and a new website. And people signed up for this other product and it had no affiliation with FreshBooks whatsoever. And that was our like Petri dish. That was our place to take massive risks, to understand the business performance of this new offering over time and create the conditions where our team could be sort of liberated from what the market would expect of us because nobody knew anything or expected anything from this company that was created out of, you know, frankly, nothing. And so that proved to be a really good way to do things. And we launched that and we brought that back through. Then, you know, what we did with our customers, and this will get to answer your question, is, you know, for the migration, what we elected to do because FreshBooks is a massive, we're really into service, like on the order of Zappos and, and Rackspace. And, you know, we take those folks on in various forums like the Stevie Awards and, and win. And like we've been doing it for a long time. You phone us, you get a real live person, you get a fast email, like we're 
we're all about service. What we decided to do was give people the choice on how they migrated. Instead of a forced migration, hey, this new thing's live, you know, you're moving to it. We took a different approach, not unlike split testing, which I'd never heard of before, split testing companies. The approach we took on migration was you choose. You choose the timing and if you want to go. And so what we said is, hey, you're invited. We'd only invite you when the features were roughly the same because we were still catching up even after launch on a couple things. And you chose the timing and we gave you the ability to go back to FreshBooks Classic. So, hey, you're invited to new FreshBooks, go check it out. If you don't like it, we'll help you go back. And then you can still come back to new FreshBooks later if you like. And so that approach to migration, very, very different. And we, we did that because, frankly, customers hate change and you know we're a mission critical system to them. So having done all those things, uh, I think actually proved to be really, really smart <laughs> on our part. Very, very pleased about that. But back to like what can other people anticipate if they're replatforming that's maybe not something you realize at the outset. A platform like ours, 10 years, you can write out all the, the features and like recreate all those features and say, hey, it has all the features you can move now. And you'll be so wrong because what you've done over 10 years is you've created and enabled itsy bitsy little workflows. Like you've polished all these like little experiences that actually people count on. And if your product is actually simple enough and used enough, people are using your product in ways you, you didn't intend them to. And so you'll find like in our case, like thousands or tens of thousands of people are using something in a way that, you know, we didn't design specifically, but they count on for their workflow day to day. And so we, you know, would sometimes invite those people, like realize that, oh, geez, the features there, but like how it all kind of rolls together is so different that we need to, we need to polish some things up before we actually really want to invite more people that look like this. And so I think that's where a lot of migrations go horribly wrong. The company thinks that they're there, but they're actually not from the customer standpoint. People just freak the hell out. And so I think we really mitigated that risk effectively. And then I think the other big lesson for us is probably could have done things even faster, but we retooled everything, not just the product, but we did our, you know, the tools we use for service. We do Zendesk. That actually went really well, but we switched billing systems as well. And that was created a whole bunch of complications. And so next time I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't do that at the same time. I, I do want to touch on, on one element though, moving from replatforming to now kind of the successful new platform. And in terms of scaling the new, not new team, but the team to where it is today and maybe inflection points within that. So scaling your culture from an organizational and just the sheer number of people, there are these organizational breakpoints. We're, we're at 300 people today, but you know, when I look back as founding in the basement, you know, there's breakpoints at like 10 people, at like 30, 40 people. I guess it'd be like 20, 40, 80, then sort of 150. And and so, you know, when you hit 20 people, for example, that's when you start, you're starting to have managers for the first time, right? Not everybody's kind of reporting to you or your co-founder. And it's like, you got to hire your, your professional managers. And that's the step. Like, geez, how do I hire a manager? What does that look like? You know, are they actually good and going to drive the business forward? Or do they just manage people? And that's hard. And 40 people is a place where not everyone in the business knows what's going on anymore. And it's very hard because prior to that, they loved being part of the small company. They knew everything. 40 people, people start wondering, hey, what's going on? What's that person saying? And it's it's a hard thing for people to deal with. 80 people is where we uh, ran into the, the biggest challenges. And I literally thought everything was going to end and die. And that's where communication breaks down and doesn't scale well. You know, the, you, you have to really start relying on things like all hands meetings and stuff like this in a, in a very different way than we had to previously and had to learn a bunch of stuff about that. Uh, you know, 150 is another scale point. We actually blew through that because our, our team was strong enough. 300, I'm told, could be another one with just projects and running them through the business. But yeah, it's very natural that, you know, as you go through, I got a whole talk I've done a couple places just talking about these things and some of the lessons learned and some of the culture hacks we used at each one to kind of overcome those scale challenges. What were some of those culture hacks? I use the example of 200 people. Actually, so, so 150 is my favorite. 150 is Dunbar. Dunbar's law. And that's 
basically saying, hey, human beings in a social environment can only understand up to 150 people. And then life gets sort of challenging for them. And, and, and you start, you know, I'll say as a CEO, you start like, that's the first time you stop remembering everybody's name. 150 people. It's like a human thing. And there's some companies like Gore Technologies that make Gore-Tex. They actually build plants in like they, up to 150 people and no more for this reason, because it, that's the size where it still kind of feels small without too much work. And so I remember us leading up to 100. I've been sort of waiting for 150 to come and studying this, taking it on as a challenge. And then, you know, we hit 150 and I'm walking down the hallways and, you know, for the first time in, in all my years, people are like looking at their shoes as they walk by in the hallway. And, you know, so for me, I was like, okay, nobody wants this. And we would, you know, at all hands being sent up and talk when we still do this, we actually build it into our first week onboarding, a little thing called heads up hello, which is, you know, it's just about like, actually, no one's going to walk by each other looking at shoes because that makes this place feel like dead and, and old. It's just heads up, look someone in the eye, you can say hello. We also have like a basically an expectation that if you don't know somebody, you introduce yourself, right? So that's like, it's kind of trying to create this sort of cocktail party environment. So those two things generally make the place feel small. We also do another thing called blind dates where, you know, we set groups of three or four people up from different departments if they want to meet other people in the company. So they volunteer and say, I'd like to be a part of blind dates. And we get them going out and, and meeting other folks. And so we do a whole bunch of things to kind of keep the place feeling small and, and social. And I believe that history and, and connections are the ties that bind and make people feel like I don't work for a company. I'm like part of a community that I really want to be a part of. Man, I love those hacks. Uh, blind date sounds quite fun. Uh, I would love to move into a quick fire round though. So my 60 seconds faster, I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Hit me. Tell me the pros and cons of extreme transparency in the workplace. Speed is a pro. I, I think the cons are like, where do you draw that line? You know, I would say most folks are going to say you stop at things like compensation. You know, I, I think the another con would be, you know, just organizational maturity and to people, you have to be very careful about how you communicate so that it's well understood and not misunderstood by many. Uh, and so practicing before you get out there, if it's a tough message to deliver to make sure it's well-rounded, those would be pros and cons. You create a bill spring, a competing company kind of within your own company. How do you view competition? Is it a row your own race? The way I look at it is you should have a vague awareness of what your competition's up to, but you should be aggressively and urgently chasing your own vision. Uh, and that's the key. Know your customer, know your vision, vague awareness of the competition, and just get to that uh, solving that that problem in your own way for your customers as fast as you can. Mike, you're in Toronto, which is a, a nice surprise for SAS to guess. So why don't you have to be in the Valley to be successful? The question is, why do you have to be in the Valley to be successful? Personally, it's like this, it's a, if you think about planet Earth, it's like a tiny place. I got a long file on this, but you know, I, I love building from home. I think you have to change some of your decisions, you know, as opposed to the expectation that you can just hire somebody out of another company and they're going to come and work for you for 12 or 14 months before they spin it to the next one and have the skills that you need. A little more of a focus on, on building from within and markets where there isn't as much like technology experience. But I, I think there are great benefits to not being in the Valley personally. And, and um, you know, there's some strengths to being there as well. But, you know, my opinion is they're, they're overrated and uh, look at Valley. Toronto and other places are coming for you. Is it tough hiring truly experienced execs in the SaaS industry when based in Toronto? I think it's a tough hiring truly experienced SaaS execs, period. You know, for me, you know, I would say yes. When when I'm looking at my senior team, my expectation is going to take me six to nine months. Some of that is because I'm picky. <laughs> uh, some <laughs> of that is because, you know, the, the local talent pool is, is more limited. And, you know, I'm often talking to people in the States and asking them to relocate. But I think if you are the right
right opportunity and you're in a market like Toronto, I'll tell you, it used to be harder for us because I remember talking to a prospective CFO one time and you know his rationale was like, listen, I can go to Toronto or I can go to Boston. In Boston, if this doesn't work out, I can find another company easily. It's not as obvious to me. I can do that in Toronto. Fortunately, that was then and this is now. And Toronto is a place where there's you know the many emerging companies that uh, someone could go to. But yeah, I think that's you know, that's part of it. And, and frankly, I take a lot of personal satisfaction from helping to build this ecosystem here and play a role in that. And then I want to finish today on a slightly reflective one. And what do you know now that you wish you had known at the beginning of your time building FreshBooks in the basement? My response to this one is always the same. And it's like, if I knew what I knew now, I, I never would have started. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Right? It's, it, it's too much. It's too hard. And so the best definition of entrepreneur I've ever heard is uh, someone who's too naive to see the obstacles, right? And you just keep going. And that to me is actually a strangely powerful thing. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show, Mike. Uh, big fan of what you've built with FreshBooks. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Harry. Really enjoyed it. What a phenomenal guest Mike was to have on the show. And if you'd like to see Mike in the flesh, you can. He will be speaking at Sasta Annual, we're very excited to say. And you can get your tickets now at sasta.com. And when you type in the promo code drinks with Harry, those three words, drinks with Harry, not only do you get 10% off the ticket price, but an invite to a Mojitos only event with me, uh, poor you. That will be great fun. As always, we so appreciate all your support. You can find Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. I'm on Snapchat at HDebbings with two Bs. Mike's on Twitter at Mike McDermott. And before we leave you today, today's podcast wouldn't be possible without High Five, the firm making meetings better for thousands of organizations with insanely simple video conferencing designed for meeting rooms. But why would the episode not have been possible without them? Well, not only are High Five the sponsor of the show, but today's interview was recorded using High Five, switching from our traditional Skype usage. Why the switch? Well, honestly, for me, it was about two things, quality and ease of use. It's the easiest to use solution with all-in-one hardware and intuitive cloud software. Plus, it's the this really high quality experience with industry leading audio powered by Dolby Voice, which you'll get to hear in today's episode. And it's so easy to use that there's no pin codes or app downloads. Just click a link in your browser and you're in the meeting. And with customers in over 100 countries, High Five is already trusted by the likes of Warby Parker, Evernote, Expensify, and Betterment, just to name a few. And to learn more and start your 30 day free trial of insanely simple video conferencing, visit highfive.com forward slash Sasta. That's highfive.com forward slash Sasta. So if High Five is mastering all things team communication and you're a data-driven CEO, executive or manager, the other big thought for you should be how do I manage and measure my team with clear objectives? Well, you should try A-Team to set clear, measurable objectives for your company, create a one-page strategy that links to your execution and measurable progress, and align your entire company to what matters most. A-Team uses OKRs to identify progress bottlenecks early, allowing you to scale your SaaS faster and better. A-Team is the unified and integrated three-in-one platform for strategy, objectives, and performance management, simply head over to ateam.com, that's A-T-I-I-M.com, and get a free SaaS CEO's Guide to OKRs for 2018. That's A-T-I-I-M.com. That really is a must. As always, we so appreciate your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's interview when it will be three weeks until Sasta Annual.